you're traveling through a gorge in the North American West, through the banks of Egypt, the splendor of Druidic England, and the shameful recent past. Your destinations repeat themselves. You're listening to the David Raffin Podcast. Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you escape! Wonderful places I have been. I went to the Nez Pierce Reservation to deliver a car and some computers. I drove the car that was being delivered, so I followed the guide car that would take me back. This took us to Stonehenge, or rather, we stopped at Stonehenge. From across the river, the Mary Hill Stonehenge replica looks great, emerging from the banks on the Washington side of the Columbia that I thought looked like Egypt. The banks of Egypt. I have never been to Egypt, so I can imagine it however I like. Up close, it looks cheesy. While I have never been to Stonehenge, I know that the texture is not right. And it's all standing upright, in an attempt to replicate the original before it lay in ruin. At the entrance, there is a marker which explains the replica as a monument to the World War I dead, from the town of Maryhill and the surrounding county. It is a comment on the futility of war. The marker also explains that the replica is incorrectly oriented toward the sun, as Mr. Hill thought Stonehenge was a place of human sacrifice. He also built the first paved roads in the Pacific Northwest, and the Mary Hill Museum of Art. Walking to the back of the replica, you can read the graffiti on the faux stone pillars, The class of 1932 was here before you. The graffiti suddenly ends sometime in the 1950s, coinciding with the town of Maryhill drying up and blowing away. Down the hill a little is the grave of Mr. Hill. It is a giant grave marker after all, just like the pyramids. Back to the road. There is a small town, and in that town there is a town hall and courthouse the size of a house a restaurant that looks sort of like a Denny's but is not, a burger shack, and a few homes and trailers. We stopped at the restaurant and ate. As we left, I picked up a free book by the door from a large stack. We passed through the dead zone, an area filled with little pup tents on each side of the road. The tents are filled with canisters of poison gas manufactured and stored by the military. The canisters lie in the tents to protect them from the heat. The canisters slowly decay. There is a sign on the road, warning you that you are passing through the dead zone. From this sign, to the sign on the other side of the encampment, and vice versa, should there be a leak, you will die. A perfectly reasonable way to store your poison gas and lay your main roads. Nearby towns have sirens installed. We cross the Columbia again. The houses start to look like plantation houses in the deep south. I have also never been to the Deep South. I am simply filled with false memories of false fronts. We enter the radio station dead zone. There is nothing on the radio but three stations, all religious. We drive, and drive, and drive. We enter Idaho, and then, in minutes, we are on the reservation. We deliver the goods. We eat something. We look at soft-bodied cockroaches. Our host points out that they are soft-bodied. 
I do not know why. There are many kids playing basketball. The reservation is the only normal place we visit this day. We do the beginning in reverse. We enter and exit Idaho, the plantations, the poison pup tents, the tiny town. We get pulled over and get a ticket, literally for not being locals. The rest of the way I read aloud from the free book I picked up in Tiny Town. It turns out to be about global government, the Jews, and all the sneaky things the Jews are up to. We pass by the grave of Mr. Hill, who built his Stonehenge as a plea for world peace. We return twice, to contest the ticket. The first time they send us away because their weekly, or was it every other week, visit from the traveling judge had been called off due to illness. Tiny Town does not have its own judge. The second time, we win in court. The traveling judge suggests, mildly, that Tiny Town simply tickets non-locals to bring in cash because few visitors go to the restaurant twice. That was a short essay entitled Wonderful Places I Have Been. And who would have thought that a town filled with anti-Semites would give you a ticket for no reason? And speaking of free literature, you don't have to read the free books they give you at strange little places in the middle of nowhere. I mean, you could go to davidraffin.com and download a free sampler. I'm available for children's parties and funerals. And every kind of mitzvah. You name a kind of mitzvah. Every kind of mitzvah. I go to places near and far for at least a minimum of transportation, food, and lodging. And that is a, an excellent way to enliven tea time. I'll describe magic tricks without actually doing them. Tell a story about a monster. All this, more or less. Sometimes I believe all of us have questions about cake. Why are there no funeral cakes anymore? Why is this event not commoditized by the Baker's Guild? Cake is a standard at every other event. Did bakers find it was unwelcome to price gouge on the cake served at a funeral? When funeral cake was discontinued, did the price of wedding cake rise? I understand the Amish still serve funeral cake. They are set in their ways. They still mix it by hand. They make it themselves, bypassing the commercial bakeries altogether. Was the cake discontinued for lack of choice? Did the mourned get to choose the color, shape, and flavor, stipulating such in a will or codicil, or were these choices thrust upon the mourned by a powerful subset of the mourners? Did someone finally wise up and say, Who died and made you God? Did funeral cake enter disfavor when it was linked intrinsically with culinary fascism? Did Mussolini have a funeral cake? Was there enough for everyone? Is that what sullied its reputation the world over? When Marie Antoinette famously said, Let them eat cake, was she talking about her own funeral? My research indicates that funeral cakes may have been somewhat akin to giant cookies, presumably because it was disrespectful to let the flour rise. What about funeral pie? Are cream pies somber enough? Fruit? Pecan? What about funeral pudding? Funeral cotton candy made at the funeral in a funeral cotton candy machine? And what about fondue? Which is more appropriate? Cheese, chocolate, coconut, honey, caramel, or marshmallow? Again, 
who will choose? Milton Snavely Hershey's body was dipped in chocolate, then caramel, then rolled in coconut. However, there was no dessert served at the reception. He forgot to leave his funeral instructions. This is not the sort of thing people like to think about. That's why people die without wills. That's why people die with wills but failing to stipulate their final dessert wishes. Today, if you attend a funeral and you want cake, you are best advised to keep it to yourself. If you stand and say, Hey, where's the cake? People will think less of you. Do not even think of sidestepping the problem by bringing a cake to the funeral. People may cry. You don't want to be known as the one who ruined the funeral. The preceding has been a presentation of DavidRaffin.com, reminding you that there should be an atheist cookbook titled Our Godforsaken Food. Because the cuisine is so diverse, we'd better get right to the eating with no pause. I myself have never given more than a passing thought to pancakes, aside from International Pancake Day. I am a terrible person. By the way, pancakes are always funnier if you call them flapjacks. Try it. (laughs) 